welcome to Status Hour. Uh, my name is Nura Arakat, and joining us today is Huma Hutfar. Welcome with us, Professor Hutfar. I'm glad to be with you. Professor Hutfar is a Canadian-Iranian sociocultural anthropologist and professor emerita of anthropology at Concordia University, Montreal. She's a renowned anthropologist. Professor Hutfar has published widely on gender and development, Islamic family law, refugees, informal economies, Muslim dress codes, and women's political participation. She has conducted fieldwork in multiple countries across the Middle East and North America. Her work is best known for interrogating Western stereotypes about Muslim women and has earned her the reputation as one of the most respected scholars working in the field of Middle Eastern women's studies. In early 2016, Professor Hudfar traveled to Iran for personal and professional reasons. After staying there for a month and just one day before her departure, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard confiscated her travel documents and prevented her from leaving. Three months later, they arrested her. Professor Hudfar spent 112 days, approximately four months in jail, before being released to Amman and then finally back home to Montreal. I had the recent pleasure of meeting Professor Hudfar in Boston at the annual Middle East Studies Associations Conference, where I found her perusing the book fair in what must have been a very absurd yet welcome return to some sort of normalcy, um, one that certainly belied this recent ordeal. Um, Welcome again, Professor. Thank you for being with us. And, and, and really, just to comment on that moment when I saw you in the book fair, uh, you described it to me in ways I think our audience would appreciate. As I told you earlier on, I'm, as a Middle Eastern, I guess I, get, I got used to uh, have um, the idea that if you live in Middle East or you're Middle Eastern, always expect unexpected. So in some way, my arrest in Iran was part of I treated it as an unexpected development. And, and, and yet this irony of expecting the unexpected tells us a lot about the precarity of the situation in the Middle East, but also the status of academics. Maybe to help our audience orient themselves, you can tell us a little bit about the government's steady encroachment upon you that begins with confiscation of your passport, multiple interrogation that then culminates in your imprisonment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I I had gone to Iran to visit family, but also I had not been in Iran for a few years because of my um, spouse illness. So I decided to go for a longer period, which is was a month, and um, and also do some archival research. But because as a part of my new project, I'm I'm looking at the history of um, women in parliament, not necessarily just in Iran, but I'm looking at several case studies like Indonesia, Iran, Argentina, Senegal. There, there are eight countries I'm looking at, and Iran was one of those, um, the Middle East case study. So that's why I had I decided I go to Iran and visit family, uh, run away from the cold in Montreal. That was also a personal side to it. And um, also then uh, pick up all the archive material I needed from the library of the Iranian parliament. And then that just before I, I left, I got an uh, unexpected visit of revolutionary guards who basically ransacked my apartment and took all the many, many books, all my data from 97, which I had collected working with Afghan refugees in Iran and Pakistan, 
in, and then of course my all of my equipment, um, my telephone, my computer, my iPad, my Kindle, everything that I had, including all of my IDs, including my university card. So I was left with no ID, and I was told to go to to their office for further interrogation, and that I had to introduce myself to the court within five business days. And um, and then I could not leave the country. What was the, your initial reaction? Everything that you have, even to verify your identity. I mean, I'm sure the worst must have been on your mind, but also this idea that also your life's work was being taken away from you. Yes, I mean, I initially I was a bit shocked, but I knew that sometimes they confiscate passports over scholars if they are leaving the country or if when they are entering in the country. And then they ask them to go and they interview them a few times and basically create a hassle, but then they let them go. But but in but I wasn't sure what was happening in those cases. Usually they don't come and confiscate your um, equipment or take your books and data, which in, in my case they did. But I was also, what concerned me a little bit more was the way they picked up, for instance, when they came across my book on hijab in North America, they just threw it on one side. When they came amongst my book um, bookshelf, they came across a flag, a Palestinian flag, because my spouse was very much active on on the question of Palestinian. They just asked me, what is this? And I, they didn't recognize it, which all the uh, work and talk they do about Palestinians, they didn't recognize Palestinian flag. So I had to say it's a Palestinian flag. And then they throw it in one side. So it was, they only picked up things that they thought they can use to make a file for me. And that, that worried me because I knew they're not after knowing um, what I was doing, but after making a file. But I kind of told myself, Maybe this is just the people who collect the material and they're used to this kind of picking up things. But then the next day I was, the next three, four days I went for interrogation and finally caught and I was then released on bail for a couple of months. After which they finally, they increased the bail to the sum that they knew I could not, my family couldn't afford in Iran. And since I said I didn't have the bail, they said, okay, then you have to go to prison. So they took me from the court right away to prison without even informing my lawyer. On paper, they told me that <clears throat> I can have my, I should come with a lawyer. But when the lawyer was not even permitted to enter into the court building, never mind in the courtroom. And so in this way, I was being held in, in Evin prison and I had days, days after days of interrogation. Can you describe... Just the ordeal, I think for most people, interrogation is such a sterile term, right? It's, a, well, obviously they're going to question you. And yet, on many levels, this interrogation of you wasn't simply to collect information, but intended to to break your spirit in many ways. Can you describe um, some of that to us and, and implications of it? Interrogation in, in, in this context is that they want to make a file and they want you to say or write that you have you have been in, engaged in my case, it, I have been engaged in collaborating with foreign state against the Islamic Republic, 
and their their excuse was that uh, they actually had lost i have to um give a little background um in iran we have the the state is made up two different um the broadly two different uh, sides there's the elected body which is government and president and the ministers and non-elected body which is the supreme leader revolutionary guard um uh, radio and television which are the uh, the monopoly of the and the non-elected police force and also judiciary so these are non-elected body and so they tend to be hardline conservatives they don't want to normalize their relationship with the with other countries and they don't actually to them democracy is a dirty word they don't they don't believe in democracy or the voice of people because they believe the supreme leader is the representative of godness so and um so in this is an ideological um situation so they had uh, they had lost the election very badly in, uh, in which was the parliamentary election for which I um I, for the first time I was in Iran I had never been in Iran in um for any election this was the 11th parliamentary election but also I have to say <clears throat> the contradiction is that um while my um while Iran is not a democracy but in terms of process of election Iran has had some 43 uh, national elections since the revolution in 37 years so every year they had at least one election um, <clears throat> and uh, but in recent time the conservative uh, candidates the hardline candidates have lost they lost the presidency uh, three years ago then they lost <clears throat> then they they lost the nuclear deal that they didn't want to sign but uh, there was a um force uh, uh, it was a pressure from the public but also from from the economy they they had to agree with the nuclear deal and then they lost the election for which i was in iran badly but i never thought iranian election is very serious so i had not really wanted to participate in the election but while i was there it was interesting for me i walked in the street look at the posters and read different newspapers but when they had lost the election then they were very furious and they wanted to believe to blame it on outside interference rather than accepting that they have lost the legitimacy maybe they enjoyed in previous decades so and i happened to be the unfortunate scholar who was in iran at the time and for me i didn't even take my you have to have your birth certificate to to be able to vote but i hadn't even taken my birth certificate because i hadn't planned to i mean election was not a big thing in my mind i wanted to be to go to the library and get some historical material from the turn of the century because iran had its constitutional revolution 101 101 or 2 years ago so i wanted i had a century of discussion around democracy constitutional um <clears throat> rights of people would be interesting to have and before and after the revolution so that's what i was in iran for and of course visiting my family and uh, but they decided that i was there to interfere with the election and they were telling me that i have influenced the election 
which was a big compliment, as I had said before, to me. Single-handed. We should have brought you to the U.S. before our, our most recent election. Uh, we had no idea of your capacity. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I, uh, I told him I wish I could. I mean, after all, they said you're, you have given, uh, you have met with uh, the vice president on women's affairs and you have been guiding her. For one thing, I had never met her. I met her um, just two days before they arrested me by chance for about 10 minutes. And then I never met her. If I see her in the street today, I wouldn't recognize her. But also it was uh, how could one person influence the election? And even if I did, there were only at most this time that they thought it was a women's revolution. We only have 17, I think 17, if it is confirmed by now, women out of 290 uh, member in the parliament is uh, even so I was in, in some way I told them that was a big compliment to me that they thought single-handedly I could influence the result of an election but, and I wish I could and I would if I could <laughs> but it's not possible for anyone to do that but anyway that's how they wanted to do so the interrogation was all building up to 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 this they wanted me to admit that I was interested in, in interfering in politics in Iran and uh, that I was a feminist as though, and I kept saying, saying, you define feminism for me, I will tell you whether I'm a feminist or not. They said, your books indicate you're a feminist. I said, yes, I am, but my definition may be very different than yours, so I want to know yours. They didn't know how to define feminism. They just, it, to them, it was just negative. And the next day, they came back and said, well, Feminist is uh, someone who questions the, the institutions. I said, well, of course, the, in any culture, continuously would question the, uh, the social institution. Otherwise, no progress will happen and the culture will die. And so, <laughs> so anyway, that, that kind of continued kind of discussion. I had decided earlier on and that, okay, I'm going to get 10 years. By the time I went to Evan prison, I had lost my optimism and I got, I thought I'm going to get 10 years. So I may as well um, say what I want and maybe in the process they, they learn something. That's really interesting. I mean, this idea of, you know, feminism as, as a, as a threat, which yes, I'm, 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 I, one can, can deduce in Iran that it might be the threat because of heightened Western concern with feminism in ways that's co-opted for other opportunistic reasons and not sincere ones. But even here, even here in North America, feminism has been attacked as somehow uh, a rail of, of, of subversiveness in a very negative way, in a very negative way, so much that it's inspired the rise of men's rights movements who feel that women have asked for too much. So for whatever it's worth, obviously, I'm, I'm, I identify as a feminist as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, the sad but truth about your story is that your detention um, the, your harassment, the targeting of you, this, you know, your use as a pawn, um, in a broader power struggle between the, you know, what you describe as two governments is not unique to you. And in fact, from what I can see, there's a, about 11 other dual citizens, academics, journalists, and otherwise who are currently detained, 
um, held in captivity by the regime. One of them was your cellmate, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who was separated from a very young daughter upon her attempted departure from Iran. Um, and, you know, what, what does this tell us um, about you get to leave? You got to leave out of, after 112 days, but others have been sentenced to 10 years and still others like Nazanin, it's unknown what's going to happen. What does it tell us about um, this broader trend of targeting dual nationalists? Is it setting an example? Is it anxiety on the part of the regime? And then, you know, separately, what made your case different that you were able to actually come home? Well, there were several, several issues. When I, you know, targeting um, dual nationals are very much um, hostage taking. We have to remember that this is a regime that from the beginning negotiated politics based on hostage taking. And, and that has become, now that they have lost more legitimacy, they actually have uh, started to do this very often. I'm sure I would not have been let go if I was British or American dual national. Um, I happen to be a Canadian and my other citizenship um, was Irish, neither of which politically were as valuable to them. The question of Nazanin was really sad because um, I only was with her for one night because they usually don't put political um, detainees together. But Nazanin and I were together for one night with, when they brought me from my um, my cell to because I think they were inspection in the prison and they didn't want me to be on in an individual cell. So that night I talked to her, although they had told her not to talk about her case with anyone, but I understood that she had also signed document because they they um, encourage her to sign the document telling her if she does all these things, they'll send her home and she can unite with her daughter whom, for whom she was very upset. She was crying most of the time. I saw her in two, three other occasions and each time conversation mostly was around her daughter and um, it's very sad to see her case. I mean, her case clearly is not even political. She, what I understood they accused her of seven years ago. She had been participating in a, in a workshop. And that, I mean, since then, she had been back and forth to run many times. But um, the problem is they, the British government owes some money, it's a disputed sum to, to, the, um, to run. And basically, Revolutionary Guard is holding her hostage to, in order to negotiate getting the, the money back and that was her case but there are many other cases see in my case um, also we have to remember that social sciences in iran is a criminal activity i mean not necessarily just in iran i know in middle east social sciences are are keen to um spying but uh, and uh, they don't know none of the states i know uh, actually appreciates uh, critical um, thinking in social science um, aspect. And so a lot of time people in Iran do research and they publish the research. When they publish, if, if what they find out contradicts the state ideology, especially the non-elected body of the state, they end up in court and sometimes five or six years imprisonment. Um, 
I can give you the example of Dr. Ghazian, who actually did the research for which she was, he was asked by the parliament during in 2003, 2000, I think 2002, 2003, but after he published his research, then they put him, uh, they took him to court and they gave him six years of imprisonment, after which once he completed his imprisonment, he left Iran. So social sciences are not easy, easy um, interests in Iran. And a lot of people try to do research on areas that has no political implication, um, which also means that critical thinking, especially on current political issues, is not advancing inside the country. And dual nationals um, are in particular are worried when they go back to Iran if they have been involved in research. Um, and that's actually one of the other things. They, they, they don't want people who, who intellectuals and researchers go back to Iran and propagate um, their critical views. Um, even for with most academics, that is true. Uh, true. So this is an unfortunate thing for the Iranian research community. So just to then ask, I mean, this, this, this touches on two things, and I, it touches on academic freedom, the precarity of the state of academic freedom. We know that there's been a severe crackdown in Turkey uh, recently since the attempted military coup as well. Maybe we should transition there to, and before we get back to the campaign about your release. Just about, you know, we're in, we're in a situation even now um, looking at now the Trump administration, the United States, that there is a heightened scrutiny of what academics are doing. Um, and, and there, you know, we've seen academics be punished by certain, uh, special interest groups. We, you know, most notoriously the re rescindment of tenure for Professor Steven Salaita for participating in public discourse. Uh, around issues of relevance, and specifically uh, Israel's uh, brutal onslaught against uh, the Gaza Strip in 2014. But this precarity is across the board, uh, and it tells us something about what we should be doing now to insist on academic freedom and what that means, that not to also romanticize it, um, but also what that means it, it politically for us. Do you have, I mean, as somebody who's who's been targeted specifically for this, do you have thoughts on that? Well, certainly. I mean, academic, um, there are two things I did while I was in in um, in prison. One, the first thing was on the third day of a lot of these shouting matches and screaming and accusing me of being a spy for for um, United States and being trained by MI6 and CIA um, and being paid by them. Um, I came back and I thought, okay, I'm an anthropologist. I'm here in Evin. Um, my method of, the most um, important method of anthropologist is participant observation. So I will um, treat this, my detention as a field work. So I I did that, and I, I basically look at it as a research project. So that helped me in terms of my survival strategy. The other issue that I reflected on a lot was academic freedom. And one of the concerns for me was, yes, I was um, 
upset about not this this freedom um, academic freedom being questioned but then I also realized uh, in the whole of my university education in Britain and and here and teaching we always assume we have the academic freedom but we didn't ever discuss it or studied or made it as a subject of our uh, interest is it was a right we assumed I think that is an important factor. A lot of time also academic freedom is treated like an import from the West because we haven't historicized it. We forget that um, within the Muslim context, there were always intellectuals who were, some lost their lives because of their views. Other people had to continuously um, be on exile, uh, going from one country to the next. And um, it's because they didn't want to give up their ideas. So this, we have kind of been divorced from this academic and the struggle to, to get academic freedom. And just by assuming it and not guiding it and not protecting it, we are now losing, uh, losing it a lot more as the states become more oppressive. That is true for the Middle East. But of course, as you said, it's very true also for, for the Western context, but especially these days, United States, and so I think academic freedom is is certainly one of the important aspects, just as we are looking and trying to protect democracy. We also have to question what do we mean by uh, academic freedom. I mean, one of the other problems is a lot of people treat, have treated first the academic freedom as a privilege and also as individual right. To me, academic freedom is, is a collective right. And unfortunately, I think we have maybe overlooked this and we have just taken it for granted that we have academic freedom. Academic freedom is not an individual privilege and is uh, and we have to um, be aware of its history and, uh, and what we have. And of course, as I said, it's also like it has a responsibility that goes hand in hand with it. If we just take it as an individual privilege and don't don't try to historicize it, we will lose it as the states become more oppressive, whether it is in the West or whether it is in the Middle East. In some contexts, of course, is more oppression than others. But I think it's very important that we look we look at academic right in different contexts, historicize it in different contexts, and have a discussion about it continuously. It is like any democratic rights. If if you don't um, protect it, you lose it. And we tend to, uh, if we don't protect collective rights, often then gets lost in, in a way much sooner because if if we don't treat that, losing the rights of one individual is, is an attack on, on a collective, then this breaks that com- a collective aspect of the academic right. And it's, it's become much easier to, to then deny academic freedom, especially to social sciences. I think I think that's a really good thing to consider and for us to think about that the one way not to take it for granted is is not to conceive of it in a monochromatic way, but by placing it in particular context, what it means in each context. So for example, you know, I'm in the North American context and and one way that you know, our ac- academic freedom is in, encroached upon is is not even by some extra- external intervention, but some sort of learned behavior where scholars begin to police themselves. 
so that there isn't ever, you know, a, a direct confrontation, but it just becomes an internalized norm of both what will be rewarded and what will be punished, uh, what what funding there is uh, available for which uh, fields of study, um, and 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 that has very deep, you know, implications beyond the more just very blatant, obvious attacks that also do exist. Um, I gave Salaita as one example, but he's certainly also one of many, um, though I think incurred a much more severe uh, consequence. Um, so just to move us um, kind of back into, into your campaign and the fact that it wasn't, that you were not alone in this condition of, of captivity, what set you apart? Uh, that that actually ensured your release. Um, and I know that there was a robust campaign for you. Do you think that that was, that that was what it was? Is, uh, is that the reason that you were able to, to be free? Yes, that certainly played a major role. It played a major role because then encouraged also Canadian government to take much more active role in discussing that. But the other thing is, um, is in my case was that the support came from academic community, but also came from several different sources. Like it came from the left and the right, the Islamic scholars and the secular scholars, and also came from uh, women, civil society, and particularly from the feminist movement. And usually you get one, pe- most people get one sort of support. And in this case, I got support from women in Indonesia and Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in in Korea, in Jordan, in, in, in Egypt, uh, and of course the Western uh, from Senegal and Nigeria. So the fact that I didn't necessarily just get support from one sort of people, I think had impact on, on the way Iranian looked at this campaign. And of course it, it helped me and, and, and that they, they couldn't just say, you know, you're a Western darling. You are obviously, there were many people and many people whom they, they were, they consider ideological allies, especially amongst the Muslim scholars had signed a petition and have written letters and op-eds in my case. So that was kind of, was unusual for them. And that encouraged them to be a bit more lenient. But in any case, they did not drop the file. They just let me go based on my the humanitarian grounding because I wasn't, I was not well. So I'm sorry, before that, I, I mean, there's a risk. There's a risk that that also, that public international support isn't there for that to produce a backlash. Um, if, if the accusation is that you're in collaboration with a foreign government. And in fact, there has been foreign intervention. I mean, that's not a fabrication, even though if it's leveraged opportunistically. Um, was there a risk in any of that? I mean, is that something that, you know, that you considered or were concerned about? Well, um, that's what I was mentioning. If it was only coming from particular Western communities, that would be there. But my the support for me came from very diverse societies and also um as I said, um, intellect, intellectuals that ideologically the regime supports, like Chomsky and um, and also some of the Islamic scholars, had written individual letters, not just signed a petition, but had written letters in, in my support or had written op-ed pieces. And that to them was, it would, it would make it too costly 
particularly if something happened to me after my hospitalization, I was actually quite sick, then it would be too costly for them in, in that sense. So they let me um, they let me go. But usually they want to get something out of expenses. They they very uh, they would tell me that I was a very costly costly person because most of my documents were in English and they had to translate it in order to be able to use it. And so as though it was my fault that they helped me and, and that it was my fault that I wrote things in English and now they have to translate it. So, yeah, the campaign played a major role, but it was it was also the kind of mobilization that happened. And, and to some extent also, as I said, my age um, and the fact that I didn't, while I was there, yes, I accepted that I have written books and I've worked on issues and I uh, defended my right within the Iranian constitution um, because none of the things I had done based on law, not the Revolutionary Guard's interpretation, was against the law. I was very concerned that, you know, my academic research is, was my, I was entitled to do it. And in fact, when they let me go, they told me I'm free to do, to go back to Iran or do research on any topic I want except women and politics. I told them. <laughs> Part of the academic rights is that you cannot tell me what I can or cannot research on. <laughs> so, so wait, but even though your file is still open, that means you can travel to Iran again, though of course you'd be surveilled. Well, they told me that I can go, but of course they very well know that I cannot go when my file is open. Um, they have um, given me imprisonment and I had uh, uh, asked for appeal. I don't have the results of the appeal yet, but that was just, uh, I think that was in theory, they were telling me that. But uh, in reality, I cannot go back, at least for now, because I don't want to enter Iran and put in jail again. Even prison is not exactly the hotel anyone signs in for. No, I mean, it's, it's um, notorious. For its conditions, and we're certainly grateful that you were able to come back. I just, you know, just something to, to think about. Um, there is a, this, these conditions merit um, extreme scrutiny. And at the same time, so much of the critique right now in the political climate that we're in, when we see that the U.S.'s president-elect is eager to undermine um, the rapprochement, the nuclear deal uh, with Iran, that the opportunity to 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 use these campaigns in, in ways that are not sincere, in ways that are not concerned with academic freedom, but in pointed opportunistic ways, should that inform the nature of our campaigns and our scrutiny? And if so, how? Well, that's, that's not an easy question to answer. Yes, the campaigns are used sometimes by um, Western governments who want to undermine Iran. But there are two things. Firstly, if a government is um, rooted and uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, with their nation and they have the support of nation, they cannot do that. We haven't forgotten what happened in Venezuela when they busted the president and the people and American President Bush recognized the new um, the, the leader of the coup, but the people poured in and brought the president back. So if a, if a state is popular, it would be difficult for the Western or any other enemy state to undermine it. That's number one. Secondly, just because, for instance, 
uh, we know human rights issues have always been used um, very politically by many of the Western states. But that doesn't question that doesn't uh, we shouldn't question the nature of the human uh, human rights because the Western state um, use it to their advantage uh, um, and not really across. Well, and so in 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 that way, I think with this kind of campaign is the same. We can't give, we can't ignore the fact that people are put in jail in this way. Look at what is happening in Turkey, and so we we still have to we have to run the campaign. We have to show that there is another form of globalization uh, happening, which is connecting people across the world, where people re- recognize that the rights of um, people in one context is is related to their to their own rights in other contexts. So it it is not an easy question, but it's one that each in each context we have to be very careful how to and strategize in a way that may uh, make it difficult for people to use it um, in a negative light. But then on the other hand, is we can't just do nothing and and because it may be used by a state in a negative way. We don't object to this kind of treatment because that also plays in the hand of oppressive states. So there is to balance out and uh, in each case devise strategies that best can help um, the rights of citizens, but also to protect um, uh, to protect human rights and the right of the states in this uh, climate. No, I mean what you touch on is something that human rights practitioners should be grappling with, right, is on the one hand, you're protecting a principle, you're protecting an individual, you're protecting some sort of bodily integrity um, or, you know, stability and protection. On the other hand, because this discourse is so immersed in a, a um, in a problematic context, in ways that it is manipulated, it puts you in a position of how, you know, having to figure out how to navigate in a way that upholds the principle, but doesn't, un, you know, doesn't inadvertently, you know, undermine an, a, another principle simultaneously. And I, there is no, there is no magic bullet. I agree with you beyond doing that work on a case by case basis, being very careful, um, scrutinizing, self reflexive, um, doing one's research, um, and being in collaboration with both, you know, the stakeholders and the marginalized groups that will be at risk of deciding what that means. But, and also, you know, at, at the very, very least, um, not resorting, um, not resorting to any sort of default just because, um, but to examine what that means. Um, yes, that's that. these are complex issues. But as I said, complex issues um, um, demand more closely examination. But I don't agree that um, just because our campaign or statements may play in the hand of states, uh, imperial states, as to use the concept, we cannot just stop not not promoting human rights and the, the rights of individual, and I think that's an important important aspect. And as a, also as a researcher, we really have to have an area of research to, to look at all these other campaigns and and issues of naming and shaming and its impact. And I think, as far as I know, 
um, this naming and shaming has worked in in many cases, but also um, overall, you look at how this opens up discussions on human rights, both for human rights, but also questioning how often um, states that have interest in prom- promoting um, the abuse of human rights for their own purposes have come under questions. So I think we need to look at both of those things simultaneously to engage in. The more people know and are, are aware of the complexities of issues, the less both for the oppressive state in, in the Middle East or uh, imperialist state in in other contexts can, can use these issues to promote their own agenda. So I think it's very important to support this, um, the human rights campaigns, but not in a not just simply just going ahead with campaign, but always reflecting on what has happened in an individual case, but also in a collective way of overall looking at various campaigns and what has worked and, and how it, it has advanced or, or not in any case, the cases of human rights abuses and academic freedom in this context. I I really couldn't agree with you more. And I uh, didn't mean <laughs> to suggest at all that we should be wary of these campaigns, but instead touching on just how difficult it is that even, you know, this basic concern with human rights becomes, um, even in that moment, risky. And yet at the same time, it's also an opportunity uh, for learning. It's a provocative moment um, to be having these discussions. Um, And it also touches on something, you know, something of of a, a particular literature, about the meaning and value of human rights and whether because of their politicization they actually become counterproductive or if in fact they remain uh, valuable. So this is both, you know, in, in, in a form of practice but also in a form of scholarship, certainly scholarship I'm concerned with, these things all become uh, very relevant and, and issues that your very experience brings to life vividly and powerfully. Um, I want to just move on just to, to kind of take us back to your uh, captivity and in that moment, how that moment you use it in order to continue your scholarship and imagine it in new ways. So you um, have said before that you used it you use, you know, these endless days as an opportunity for your own fieldwork. What were you talking about? Can you tell us more about that? Well, um, as I said, on the third day, after long days of shouting matches and and screaming at me for being trained by CIA and MI6, um, and also they insisted to, they kept asking because I. We, when I was a student, a graduate student, uh, with along with um, nine other um, women from the Muslim context, we set up a network because we realized all of us know about women's movement in the West, but we know nothing about what is happening in our neighboring country. Well, earlier on in the history, in the 19, uh, early 1900, even though traveling was difficult, there was no phones and all that, women we're much more in touch with one another. So we had set up this network of women living under Muslim laws. And we had used that. Now, women living under Muslim laws, not just Muslim women, because we thought the Christians and 
and the Jews and Baha'is and Zoroastrians all live in, in this context are affected by by Muslim traditions. So they kept telling me, was it CIA that told you to set up? Was it was it uh, um, MI6 gave you the budget? And and I kept saying there was no budget. We were just students, and we decided. And they shouted and shouted. And in the end, I said, if you tell me who told the Iranian people to have a revolution, I will tell you who told us to to set up the network. And so that was the end of it. But at that time, I came up when I came up that day. I said, okay, this is when. I am going to treat this as a research and reflect on that. As, and as someone who, who I taught human rights courses for 12 years in the sociology and anthropology department, so I thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to do anthropology of interrogation and see how human rights and constitutional rights are treated, but also the technique they use to demoralize people. So that became in some way a survival strategy for me, I mean, I didn't think of it that, like that at the time. But in some way, yes, I was object of their interrogation, but at the same time, they were object of my my academic research. So I would um, think about it and I would look at it and I come and, well, I didn't have pen and pencil because they don't give you paper. Um, so I would just pretend I was writing it on the wall to, to help me to think and memorize what was happening. I spent hours and hours every day just writing on the wall as though I was writing on the board. So how did you write with your toothbrush? <laughs> well, I was actually since I had nothing else I the only thing equipment I had was my toothbrush. So I use it <laughs> I use hold it like a pen and just wrote on the wall. I mean not actually writing was pretend it's the act of writing that helps people to think and write. And this is not um, something new that I have done. Apparently, this is what historically we know we have documents. I didn't know this at the time that people have been doing this for a thousand years. They would write with their fingers on their ears to try to think and memorize because the act of writing helps, um, helps thinking and reflecting on issues and also at the same time memorizing. So I did that during uh, while I was there, which of course sometimes when they had mo moved me to again to my individual cell, they would bring one other young person to put with me, and uh, they were they thought I was crazy spending so all my time writing, <laughs> pretending that I'm writing on 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 the on the marble stone of the wall. Um, so, but this is how I, it helped me to, to reflect on, on these issues. And it was very, very important because then it, it also helped me to be much more observant of the various technique, you know, not just good cup and bad cup, but, but the various technique and different, different interrogators because I had, I had many of them. Uh, would adopt in order to to make me say what they want me to say. How 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 do you mean? So saying things like what? Well, they because they were they wanted me to to admit that I have been sent there by the foreign state because that's how they could then show that I was actually an agent and I was at that time they were still interested in 
uh, in, in implicating vice president on women's affair and that I had influenced her in her strategies and encouragement of women to participate in the election. So they they would use and they used any meeting that I had gone or any research I had done and uh, including well, I had worked on family planning and women uh, and family laws and refugees. How did I, it happen that I now write on women and politics? I said my book, which is published in English, is Electoral Politics. It's uh, actually was published in uh, 2011, does not even have a reference to Iran. So they would say, well, you because you are clever, you knew if you write about Iran, then you can use the book here. I said, but if I had written about Iran, then you would say, you see, you wrote about Iran. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I think There's no winning here. I couldn't, I couldn't win. Yeah. <laughs> so and then you I, couldn't stay I, silent either. Could, so this is, this is not looking good. No, so I, I argued about all these cases, but then I, I thought, well, and all the time I ask for to, to be able to see my lawyer, but they, not only they didn't let me see my lawyer, but they were pressuring me to change my lawyer, which was, uh, which is against the Iranian law. Uh, I wasn't talking about human rights laws or international laws. They kept telling me they have, they don't need international laws because they have Islamic human rights. So every now and then when they were pressuring me in that way, I said, oh, is this part of this the Islamic human rights? And then they would get quiet because they knew what they were talking about. And when they were trying to break my spirit at some stage, they played the music um, which was played in my husband's funeral. And so they had that on my iPad as a film and they played it to me too. Supposedly that for me to remember Canada, I kept saying, I don't want it, please turn it off. You know why you're using this? And they told me that, no, we just want you to remember Canada. In the end, when... Um, I was so furious because I knew why they are doing this. I said, okay, is this part of the Islamic human rights? I mean, when I was so angry when I said that, they stopped the music at that time. That's really and, vile, actually. I think, and for our listeners, uh, the context, you, this, these interrogations were taking place between March and something like September, and your husband had just passed away in December 2015. So we're talking about a difference of months when... Part of your trip to Iran was, in fact, part of that grieving process, no? Well, actually, my husband passed away in uh, in 2014, but I was still dealing with my uh, the situation there. I had actually gone for early retirement because we both wanted to travel, including traveling in the Middle East a little bit more. And my and so I thought, if I have early retirement, we can we can do that while I finish my books that are sitting on my desk for so long because I don't get um, the chance to finish them. So, But then by the time, just six months before finalization of my retirement, my, my spouse passed away. And so it was a little bit of a readjusting to living alone again after 27, 28 years. And then being retired with the purpose of being able to be with him and writing my book. So it was a adjustment and I at that stage I thought it would be good for me to travel a little bit go to Britain to be with my family who live in Britain and also go to Iran and uh, collect my archive material but also visit friends and families there and travel a little bit which I 
unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to travel. I'm incredibly sorry about that that kind of interrogation and and that kind of treatment. And I'm sure it's the tip of the iceberg of the rest of the experience, though very appreciative for for your for your spirit and and for your continuing work. Um, well, I had um, I had some writing project. Now, obviously, I I've become much more interested in academic freedom. The one of the other things they told me because I criticized them for for these um, breaking of um, my rights and academic freedom. Um, they kept saying, "Well, we we just arrested you. Look at what is happening in Turkey. They're arresting uh, academics by their thousand. So they brought that up to you. Oh, yes, yes. They were very, very, um, so they kind of felt they are much better than Turkey, which was supposed to be the democratic state in in the Middle East. So they frequently reminded me of the fact that they are treating me well and um, they didn't subject me to physical torture. I mean, the fact that they were shouting, the fact that they would, um, the interrogation session would go eight, nine hours sometime, and also the fact that a uh, couple of times I was really very, very, very sick and I could barely talk and I could barely sit in a chair and they they acted as though I am pretending to be sick. And so so when I complained to them about that, then they would tell me, well, you're not as bad as Turkey. Like they, they arrest academicians by, by their thousands. So that was the warning, warning point for me that now we have, until now, at least people would say Turkey is more more democratic. Now we have none of the states in the Middle East who can have that claim. Turkey is arresting by the thousand. Iran has never been kind to the scholars and to uh, to its critique or didn't leave any space for opposition within within Iran and. And we have the Egyptian case now, and we have Libya. The whole situation is like, is not helping uh, citizens as such. So I became much more concerned and spent quite a lot of time thinking about these topics and following the case, especially after, finally, after the first months or months and some weeks, they gave me newspapers and Iranian newspapers that I could read and I read about development in Turkey which Iranian newspaper followed very closely so that was not um, lifting my spirit to say the least no absolutely I mean those conditions that you describe obviously are are very daunting and and represent um, just a horrific condition uh, for for people of the Middle East. I mean, the Middle East is so vast and it's, it's good to be particular, but even the, the states that you mentioned where there are sites of counter-revolution as in Egypt, um, as in uh, Libya, as in crackdown um, in Turkey, but where even the possibilities of being able to teach and be an academic are severely compromised by constant conditions of uh, brutal uh, civil war in Syria, and obviously um, of apartheid and occupation in Palestine. These are these are um, incredibly daunting moments, and yet at the same time, it's very interesting the way uh, how people of the Middle East, uh, in quotation marks, are discussed as both being horribly evil and horribly oppressed, and so that you lose this sense of. Um, agency 
in between. And, and that becomes the work. That becomes uh, a lot of the work of scholars on the Middle East who are trying to provide, as you are, um, nuance, um, trying to provide um, textured ways of understanding this that are productive rather than uh, monochromatic. Yes, and it's not an easy, easy task. It's quite complex to be able, because the situation is so diverse, in, even yeah. within, within one state. And, uh, and also politics is very dynamic in the Middle East. And so we have, we have to deal with the continuous change, uh, change of political context, what is happening on the ground, and also um, the reaction to a whole lot of journalistic and, and um, scholarly um, production of knowledge, which doesn't reflect always the complexities of what is on the ground in most of the Middle Eastern um, societies. That's right. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining Status Hour. Thank you for helping us contribute to the production of knowledge uh, through your own story and experience. And we'll definitely be in touch with you as you continue to, you know, as we see the fieldwork emerge uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, from your captivity. Um, but also um, the work uh, that you'll be doing and hopefully we'll be doing with you in, in, in defense and strengthening of academic freedom. Yes, well, thank you for having me. Yes, I think it's very important that we should continue have this discussion about academic freedom and critical thinking in, our, in the context in the Middle East and also broadening because academic freedom is not just a Western rights, it's, and it's not a rights that is, should be uh, in just in one state or one under one state. It, we should look at it as a, as a collective global rights because production of knowledge is not dependent on just the one boundaries of one country. But, and we don't have to reproduce knowledge um, that is already produced in one country in another context. Similarly, academic freedom is a global, is a collective right that we should view it as a global right. And therefore, protection of it in our context should be part and parcel of thinking about academic freedom. On that note, thank you, Huma, so much. And we look forward to having you again. Thank you very much. 